Good morning, good afternoon, good evening from wherever you may be. This is Snapshots in Hockey History. And welcome to another episode of Snapshots in Hockey History, where we relive the hockey highlight reel. My name is Brett Small. As always, just a friendly reminder, Snapshots in Hockey History is a listener-supported podcast brought to you free of charge every single Monday at 8 a.m. I will never ask you for a dollar out of your pocket for this podcast, but if you want to do something nice, you want to help us out, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media, on Facebook at Snapshots in Hockey History, and on Twitter at Snapshots In. Hope everyone is having a happy Monday and a good week. I want to thank Scott Gruel again for coming on last week. I had a great time talking to him. I know there have been some requests for some like minor league talk, and I thought that was a pretty good episode. Uh, enjoyed hearing about some of the different characters that I wasn't even familiar with because I grew up really with only the NHL, and I didn't even really know about the IHL and the AHL. I knew there was a hockey team in Baltimore because I grew up in Washington, D.C., but I didn't like understand what it was. But I only really knew about the Capitals and the, the teams in the NHL. And speaking of that, that leads right into our guest this week. Awesome guest, Alan May, took time out of his busy schedule. Of course, Alan is one of the broadcasters for the Washington Capitals now, played in the NHL for the Capitals, the Dallas Stars, a couple other teams, had a couple coffee with a few other teams that we get into in this interview. And uh, this was probably one of the funnest times I've had doing an interview. My history with Alan actually goes back about a year and a half ago. Basically, what happened was I went up to him after I did the first interview with Mike Lawler and said, hey, just wanted to give you the heads up. Mike Lawler says hello. And we were downstairs at the uh, Capital One Arena and he was in between shoots. So he was rushing around in his suit and he literally stopped dead in his tracks and goes, how do you know Mike Lawler? And I went, oh, well, I just you know ran into him and he wanted me to tell you he says hello. And he was just like, oh, my God, I love that guy. I haven't talked to him in years. Can you give him my number? I said, sure. So I emailed Mike and gave him his number and those two guys connected. And I just thought that was awesome that I could bring two guys together from my childhood that hadn't talked in a while. And, he, and you know, I saw Alan a few weeks later while I was downstairs again at Capital One Arena and he stopped what he was doing and went, hey, I, I talked to Mike Lawler. Thanks a lot for connecting us. And I went, oh, yeah, that's cool. I, uh, I just saw one of your other I just talked to one of your other old teammates. He goes, who's that? I said, Chris Felix. He goes, you know, I just heard a podcast with Chris Felix on it. And I looked at him and went, and that's my podcast. And he had this look on his face like, wait, are you serious? Are, are you kidding me? So Alan listened to it and I guess he liked it. And I asked him at that point if he'd be willing to do an interview. And he said, dude, no problem anytime. But, you know, he's a real busy guy. So it took us about a year and a half to connect. He sent me an email a couple of weeks ago. He said, hey, I'm ready to do this. And I actually went to his house in Washington, D.C. And and uh, we hung out for like three or four hours. It was a blast. It was he's a guy that, you know, even though I record this interview with, I, I would just love to sit and have a beer with. I mean, just a, a great guy. We talked about family. We talked about sports. We talked about business, uh, a ton of good hockey stuff. And for this interview, we focus on his 89-90 season, which is really when he broke into the NHL. And this is going to be a two-parter because the interview was about an hour and a half long. And one of the things I try to do is when a guest starts talking, I just try to shut up and let him talk. And uh, Alan didn't disappoint. I mean, you hear so many things about kind of, you know, getting flipped around between a few organizations via trades. You hear about the friendship tour, which was like his 
really his opportunity to make the Washington Capitals. And for those that aren't familiar with what the Friendship Tour was, it was a tour that the Capitals took. They went overseas in like 1989, and they played against a couple teams in Sweden and a couple teams in, in Russia. And it was really the first time that an NHL team had gone to Russia. And we did a whole episode with this on uh, with Chris Felix early on. It was one of uh, it was our first episode we did with Chris. So that uh, that episode's available in the archives if you want to go back and hear it. But uh, a great interview. I think everybody will really enjoy this. Uh, Alan is uh, a phenomenal dude, and uh, I'm just you know what I've rambled enough. Let's cut to it. And uh, thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to follow us on uh, social media at Snapshots in Hockey History on Facebook and at Snapshots in on Twitter. We're covering your rookie year. Your, well, not really your rookie year, but your first year, full year in the NHL. You became a Washington Capital in June of 89 at the NHL draft. You played a few games in Boston and a few in Edmonton, but on draft day you were traded. Um, so, Alan, you bounced around a bit. What are you kind of thinking at this point, finding out you're coming to Washington? Well, I was, I was coming home. My dad actually called me. I was uh, one of my teammates with the Maine Mariners, a kid that grew up in Edmonton. Terry Talifer was a goaltender, was a backup goaltender to Bill Ranford in Maine in the American Hockey League. Uh, Mike Milbury is our head coach. We had a really oh, good that hockey. that had to be an experience. That was the best. I loved it. I uh, loved the guy. And we were... Uh, I get traded in a big trade to the Oilers. I played three games. I played in a league called the Atlantic Coast Hockey League the year before. So every day I was playing pro hockey uh, for a buck, uh, and I wouldn't have taken money. Like most guys, we would have played for free. And I started to get good enough and believe in myself when I was with the Bruins that I'm going to be the second or third best right winger on this team. Cam Neely is numero uno, and he will be as long as he's able to play hockey. But there's a role on this team, and they played a style that I like, muck and grind, hit, fight, compete every night, small rink, more contact. Uh, they loved all my antics. Uh, and I get traded to the Oilers. Well, the Oilers, I was so upset the day I got traded there, and I got to, and this will lead us to Washington. But when I got traded to the Oilers, I was so upset. And I grew up in Edmonton. I was a season ticket holder every day that you played your junior hockey like new wet right? at the end of my career yeah, yeah. Okay. when i didn't get a scholarship because i had too many i was geographically undesirable didn't get a scholarship <laughs> 50 goal score in junior lots of penalty minutes and i went and played major junior said i'm gonna have to go this route i'll either play canadian university or maybe some pro team will give me a shot in the IHL or whatever. I didn't even know about this other league called the Atlantic Coast League. Uh, well, that's like the ECHL now, right? Yeah, it's the, sa it's the same group. I think lawsuits ended up be making it the ECHL. So they changed the, one letter and yeah, they're yeah. like, oh, okay. All right, it that usually sense. had a lot to do with bankruptcies and things like that. But um, so when, when I get traded the Oilers, I was really upset. But the best thing that happened is Glenn Sather had a template for our coach that we used for practice every day. And the practices were too long. Uh, from by today's standards, they would, it, you, you get fired for having two and a half hour practices every single day and morning skates that went 45 minutes to an hour with bag skating in them. But my skating was because I had overtrained. My skating I felt was kind of going backwards a little bit when I was at the like I got myself into a little bit of a bind, and then I trained way too many eight to ten hours a day and just obsessed with gaining weight. And I could never gain weight, so the more I did, I think it restricted my skating. So I get to the Oilers. And just naturally, my skating got better. And I hated it every day, but I was always taught to work hard every shift, every practice. 
and my skating got so much better. And when I first got up to the Oilers, their uh, practice was so confusing compared to stops and start of the Boston Bruins and most every other team there was. Uh, it took me a couple of days to figure out what the hell was going on. They had these things called regroups where you'd pass the defenseman, you'd loop in the neutral zone. There was no starting and stopping with the Oilers. It was go, 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 fill lanes, be more intuitive on the ice. And the more I did of this, I just got better and better at it. So by the time I got traded, uh, because I wouldn't sign a new contract, I had an American money contract back then. So there's a lot of information in this. And it really mattered having a Canadian dollar contract in America. And I was the highest paid guy in the American Hockey League through a bonus structure I had put in my own contract as my own agent. And I uh, took a gamble on myself with a wink-wink from Mike Milbury. He said, take that contract. I go, I'm taking that contract all right, all of right. the three that were offered to me. Um, so I get traded to... LA and you know I'm excited but I'm not able to play for the Kings until the next year I find out after I get called up and they said you can't play for us until next year so a gentleman's agreement so I go to the American Hockey League I'm playing for the Maine Marin or uh, New Haven Nighthawks and I'm flying and I feel like I got let out of prison because I was playing in Cape Breton uh, it was no fun off the ice it was no fun where we lived it was hard to find a decent place uh, and the road trips were hellacious it took it was always a like a it was an ordeal to get out of town. And I was the happiest guy in the world to go on road trips. And uh, I couldn't wait to sleep in a hotel or whatever it was and play on the road. Just and, outside of Cape Breton, yeah, just somewhere and, you know, different. They're good, they're good people there. The arena was sold out every game. But, you know, I was one of the better players. And Mark Lamb was there, Kelly Buckberger, for a little while. And we were a very young team. The coach was hard on us, but a really good guy. Loved him, Ron Lowe. Um, we, they weren't that good because we had too many guys that were given – contracts in pro hockey that were just draft picks that showed up out of shape that weren't ready uh that were coddled so it was kind of a bad environment and so I get traded to New Haven and I rip it up and we go to the league finals and I know now that I'm an NHL player I didn't believe in my first stops in Boston I was was like I could play for the Bruins you know but I still needed work and then I get to the Oilers I was like the reason I was so upset is they were too good. They had too many great players. Oh, my God. That was one of the greatest teams of all yeah, time. Yeah, and it, even the guys they said I'd be competing with, I just had a mic of, no damn way. I know hockey. Marty McSorley is bigger and better than me. Kevin McClellan was a Stanley Cup champ. Then you have Craig Simpson, Glenn Anderson, Yari Curry. And they were always playing me at right wing back then, whereas I'd played every position my whole life. So you kind of get pigeonholed. So I get traded to L.A. We tear it up, and all of a sudden – I know every team's now starting to get interested in me because how well I played in the American League Finals, or just the playoffs in general. John Tortorella was an assistant coach. Rick Dudley was a head coach. And L.A. signed a couple of older players, and I got pissed off. And by now I'd hired a real agent instead of myself, and I was really upset with the L.A. Kings because they signed these older guys. And I said, you know, they're making me a great contract offer, and I would have been – Probably the highest paid guy in the American Hockey League if I got sent down. It was a two-way contract. You know, remember how those work. So is this when McNall, though, had Bruce McNall yeah, purchased the team the at this point? Gretzky had been traded the summer before when I was with the Oilers, and I was in Edmonton one of the worst days ever. Uh, it, it was like someone was assassinated. So, someone shot, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was bizarre. And I, being a hometown kid and loving the Oilers my whole life, that was a shock. So when McNall owned it, all of a sudden, guys started to get paid real money. And... You know, the salary disclosure was coming, so all of a sudden everyone was no, going to know what everyone was else was going to make. And my first offers on my contract were unbelievable. I would have been higher paid in the minors than 
most of the Boston Bruins and Oilers were at the time. And this was still Alan Eagleson. Is it, it's the period where yeah, I think, salaries yeah. are still pretty low. Yeah, it hasn't yeah. really come Eagleson out yet. Eagleson a good now. I can't remember the transgression. But anyways, so when I said I want to be traded to my agent, I thought it was kind of bold and stupid of myself. But at the same time, I want to play in the NHL. And I don't give a shit what team I'm playing for. I want to play for any effing team in the league. And so now we go back to this wedding I'm at. One of my old teammates, he's getting married in my hometown. We got all these hockey guys. So we go to the church part. My girlfriend at the time and I go to my parents' place. You know, as most guys, you live at your parents' place in the off season because, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're kind of a vagabond. So we uh, go to change. My dad walks out and he goes, you got effing traded. <laughs> <laughs> he wanted me to play with Gretzky and wanted me to play for the Kings. And, you know, he, he, he bought 13 season tickets a day that Wayne Gretzky was bought in the World Hockey Association by Peter Pocklington from a guy named Nelson Scalbania. Oh, yeah, so sure. So we bought our extended family. Uncles had, you know, so we had, I had two season tickets. My dad had four. Like, I was pretty lucky growing up And uh, when it came to the hockey department. So the, uh, he was really upset. So I go on the, I go in. And to my parents' house, and Brian Murray is on the telephone. And so I get on the phone, hey, and I'm not going to imitate Brian, but I used to do a great imitation. And for those that don't know, Brian is the head coach yeah, of the Washington yeah, Capitals. And he's there with David Poyle. So I talked to those guys, and uh, I was kind of delirious all of a sudden. I was like, holy shit, I still got to go to the, the after <laughs> the wedding reception. And uh, so we're sitting there, and I'm starting to get pissed off. Because like, son, I wanted to play for, I wanted to play on a line with Wayne Gretzky at some point. And I looked at guys, that physical guys that were, and the Kings were fast and physical. They were fun. And I thought, this would be perfect. I will get numbers with that team. Hockey was, it was the best thing that ever happened in National Hockey League when you look back. Gretzky getting traded to the Oilers. So I get traded to the Capitals, and I'm not too happy. And there was something about, and I remember I was in a bar with my teammates in New Haven. Uh, I think it was Bobby Valentine's Sports Bar. Uh, the old uh, Texas Rangers manager had, okay. had, the, had these sports bars in Connecticut. And so we're in the sports bar in Milford, Connecticut, I think it is. And we see Ron Hextall score on the Capitol. And I go, what a bunch of losers. They should have done something about this. They're getting bullied all the time. They, you know, they, don't, they don't back it up. They don't, they don't go toe-to-toe with these guys. Like, I think that uh, was in the playoffs. Hextall yeah, shot was, it down it from was. the net. Yeah. And I, I just remember it because I kind of like the Caps. I always loved the uniform, the red uniform. It was my favorite NHL jersey. And never did I once ever want to play for the Washington Capitals prior to this. Because <laughs> I looked at them the first time they came to Edmonton. I think Gretzky put up seven assists with, I think, Plumbers. Seven, you know, I think it was four different guys on seven assists. Maybe not Plumbers. Blair McDonald was one of the guys. He was their first captain. Uh, but I just always looked at them kind of losers. Like, oh, God. And I still had that it was like my, how my generation they, looked yeah, at the Atlanta Thrash. They, they, or or yeah. I guess even the St. Louis Blues, because they won now. But yeah. growing up for me, yeah. the Blues were like. Yeah, they were always a middling team. But yeah. some team, the Caps, you know, when I was a kid, they were the worst team in the National mm-hmm. Hockey League. Kansas City, all these, you know, it was a bad idea the way they ran expansion back then. There was a reason all the teams failed. And uh, it, it, it didn't have to do with the owners. But that's another story we can get into another time. But anyway, so. When I, uh, I, I finally, I go to this, the wedding reception and I told the guys, I got effing traded. <laughs> <laughs> no way. You're going to play for the Kings, man. You were, you were set. Like these are all the, the whole party, the whole wedding reception. It's all NHL. It's all NHL, NHL guys. It's and... all these Edmonton had the most NHL players at the time back then. And it's just hockey guys and everyone knows everyone. And 
you know, everyone's a little jealous and envious of this guy got a, oh, I'm better than him. You're thinking privately. Uh, but it traded. Well, on Monday night, it was the only night of the week I used to go out with my friends. Because, I, 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 like I said, I trained a ton every day. And uh, so Monday nights I go out and I drink way too much. I'm kind of pissed off. I've never, never gone out and had drinks and been pissed off before. And I remember I walked home from the bar I was at with my friends. I was so mad. So angry. Yeah, I, I was so mad I walked home. I can't I, sit here anymore. And, and I, I, I wish I you. could say I walked home 12 miles. I don't even know how far it was, but it was probably a few We'll miles. go with 12. We'll go yeah. with 12. Yeah, we'll, we'll walk to my parents' new house, and uh, which is further than the other house would have been easy. And uh, it, it's a hell of a walk. Anyways, I go home and in bed, got hung over, passed out, and my mom's shaking me in the morning. She goes, Alan, Washington Capitals are on the phone. I, I don't want to talk to them. <laughs> I was so mad still. And uh, then finally, I get on the phone, and I talk to the team, David Poyle's executive assistant, and uh, Pat. And so she's telling me this is what's going to happen, blah, blah, blah. And I go, okay, coach is going to call you. And I said, all right. And I, I just hang up the phone. I don't want to talk to anybody. I'm, I'm mad. I got a hangover. And uh, next thing you know, Terry Murray calls me. And it's one of the best conversations I've ever had in my life. Terry Bryan's brother. Yep. And Terry's the head coach of Baltimore, the Caps farm team. And I was awesome against that. Every time we ever played them, it was the best game I had in the American Hockey League. And breakaways, fights, lots of hits, points. Uh, and uh, so he's telling me all these things about me. He goes, you're a leader. You come to play every game. You're better on the road than you are at home. You're not scared of anyone. You do whatever it takes. You're an excellent skater. You're fast. You're physical. You're a team guy. Your teammates. And he's going, I start writing all this stuff down. So basically, like, your head is just like, we start, now, yeah. All of a sudden, the hangover's gone. I'm writing all this stuff down on my notepad that I used to keep beside my bed. And I write all these things down. Well, that day, I have the best workout of the summer. The next day, the next, every day. Power of positive But thinking. all I'm doing is reciting these things to myself over and over what he said. So at that point, by the time my summer's over and I'm on my way to Washington, I'm, there's no doubt in my mind I'm playing in the NHL. Now, I'm going to be on the team opening night. I'm going to be the best player in training camp. I fear no one. And uh, we went to Russia and Sweden for training camp. And, it, it, you know, that phone call by Terry Murray turned my entire career around. Let's talk about, I guess, the first days of training camp, really. I mean, you're the new guy on the block. How do you establish yourself? What did you do to kind of show everybody, hey, Alan May's here? Well, we went to Sweden and they don't play my type of hockey. No, they don't. No, they so, don't. And especially, so we're going to, it's called the friendship tour. So we're doing Sweden for the first part of training camp. Then we're going to Russia and we're playing in these friendship games in Moscow, St. Petersburg, and Riga, Latvia. And had you been to Russia before? Never. This all, so this is all new to you? Never. And I was always a runt. So I was usually told I was too small, didn't weigh enough. I was five foot one the day I got my driver's license at 16. I played all through junior at about 150, 160 pounds if I was lucky. Uh, my draft year, I was 5'7", 135 pounds. My dad's 5'2"-ish. So I was brought up to be a small person and take no shit. And <laughs> so, my, you know, my dad was bullied as a kid. He was a small guy, uh, had some physical difficulties growing up. So he was a badass and still is. And I was taught to live my life a certain way. Stand up for your friends. Stand up for your family. Don't let anyone push you around. Stand up to bullies. Uh, not just in hockey, but in all my personal, everything in life, you know, stick up for that kid that's getting picked on a school. And uh, when we go to uh, Sweden, the guys don't know who I am. There is no internet. 
and the guys in the NHL don't read about the guys who are everywhere else. I read about it. I'm obs- I still read every day about hockey. I, favorite thing for Twitter, not politics, not anything like that. I read hockey stories from legit hockey people, and that's how I start my day. That's how I end my day. And so I know who everyone is. I, I walk in today. The NHL Network is on, yeah. sitting in the family room. Yeah. So this the so I know everyone's stats. I know where they're from, their hometowns, which way I know which way every guy in the league shoots, left or right, how old he is, you name it. When we go to training camp in Sweden, I'm in phenomenal shape, and the only guy close to me is Michael Pavanka. Mm-hmm. And we do these uh, skating drills, and I'm killing guys. And I have a really good skating coach back home that's all about keeping your body fluid and so I'm killing the guys in the skating drills I'm on a really good line at Dale Hunter and Jeff Cortinall and uh, the coaches know who I am they know that I had 1200 penalty minutes and you know average about 20 goals a season in the minor leagues in the in the and the coast of the American Hockey League they know I hit everything that moves so our first game in Sweden I remember we were down we we're playing Bank Gustafsson's team and I, I don't think Bank was playing Hawken Lube was still playing but they kick our ass first 10 minutes we're down like three nothing maybe and they're loop-de-loop. They're playing like the Oilers. And Caps are a straight-line team back then. They're a four-check, muck and grind. And someone did something to me. A guy stuck me. One of the Swedes stuck me. And all of a sudden, you know, I was trying to play this friendship type of game. like An know, exhibition game. Yeah, but I never believed in taking a game off. So I'm playing within the rules of the game, of the European game. Well, I get pissed off. I... A guy sticks me, and that's it. That's it, motherfucker. And I chase after this guy. I run through him so hard and just start cracking him with my stick. And I come back to the bench, and Brian Murray's going, I wish I could imitate him, but it's not right. But anyway, so Brian is like, what the hell is that? I go, and I just start going on a, a tirade on the bench, on a verbal tirade, and fuck that. It, I'm just going, motherfucker. I don't know if I can, you can say you this can, on your you, podcast. Yeah, say whatever you want. Say whatever but, you want. So I just go absolutely berserk, and I start running the shit out of guys. And he had called a timeout, and he's like, calm down, everyone, blah, blah, blah. Get your game back in order. Quit watching them. I started running the shit out of everybody. I score, end up scoring a goal. Might have had two goals, but as we go through Sweden, I'm just running. I'm, I'm pissed off, and I'm nailing guys. I'm playing my style. I'm not playing this candy-ass style of hockey that, you know, I, I'm looking at at the time. Swedes are incredible hockey players, and – my favorite, some of my favorite teammates are guys from Sweden and great guys. But at the time, that's not NHL hockey. Right. There's a way you play NHL hockey and you stand out. My dad taught me stat sheet every game. You get a goal, you get an assist. If you didn't get any of those, you better got something else. Make sure everyone knows you're playing. So I'm making sure all the Swedes know I'm playing. And then uh, we go from Sweden, which was like heaven at the time, to hell, which is Russia at the time. <laughs> Sweden couldn't have been any better. Just the biggest and distraction. And now you're in communism Russia. Yeah, and you have all these beautiful people in Sweden. Everyone's in shape and smiling, and the town we're, the towns we're in are gorgeous. We played in Nikki Backstrom's hometown the last night we played there in Gavle. And I think uh, Willie Lidstrom, who was a great NHL player and that I, I really loved, he was on the other team, and they, they stood in the arena all the time. So it was fun. It was awesome. The food was good. Uh, everything was awesome. We go to Russia. We fly in this airline that they have. I don't know if that airline's still around. And we get to Russia, and it's completely different. They steal our food the first day in the hotel, the food that we brought Jesus. for game days. And, you know, we're told not to drink the water. And, you know, it's still, it's still a, uh, a Cold War country. It's still, there's still a wall up, you know, for a few more months. Anyway, so 
it's different. People are following us around. We're assuming it's KGB, and it was bizarre. And we had to check in on our hotel floor. We had to check in on the elevator, your floor. Uh, it was noisy. It was kind of awesome, though, but it was like uh, – I didn't do any touristy things because I was there to make the team, but a lot of guys were going on mm -hmm. different things. I would only go when we had to. Uh, so I would stay in the hotel. I'd work out. I'd go practice, uh, skate my ass off every day. And then the first game we played the Russians, uh, I think we played Dinamo, and we had, we'd been working on these breakout plays. And my, one of my first shifts of the game, I do this breakout play where it's a, it's a thing where a relay where you give it to the forward, you give it to the winger, and then the winger throws it back to the goaltender, the defenseman in front of the net who whips it up the other side. And uh, in this game that we have in Moscow, and I'm, I can't believe I'm playing in the Moscow sports arena, which is all world. I, I'm old enough to remember the 72 series uh, and all the great you know, Canadian-Russian hockey rivalries. It's a really big deal for me as a hockey historian to be there. And I give up the puck, but it's not, I'm mad because it's not my fault. The defenseman's got his head up his ass, Bob Rouse. And... Uh, I throw Bob under the bus. Sorry, and, Bobby. Yeah, and uh, so I th throw it back to him, and he's not paying attention. Gets picked off, and I'm not sure if it was Pavel that scored, but it was some awesome young Russian that scored the goal. Who we I, I believe it, it might have been Burry that got that puck. So effing fast. Anyways, so I go to the bench and I'm livid after the goal, and I break my stick. You're not supposed to break your stick, especially when you're a rookie. And I go on one of my tirades again, my temper tantrum, like not, not a temper tantrum because that's soft. Uh, <laughs> I, go on, I go on a tirade, but I'm mad. And the coach comes over and he's calm down. And I'm, fuck that. I'm not calming down. That son of a bitch. You and I'm upset. The next shift I go out, I'm on that good line with Courtnall and uh, Hunter. And I get a one-timer pass from behind the goal line, kind of like where TJ is. But I take a slap shot full on everything under the bar and score a goal bar down yeah so bar down uh before it was bar down <laughs> but we're always pre-bar pre down but we all but we always wanted to score crossbar and in so i ripped that and then i just start smoking russians the rest of the game just nailing everything and i'm now my confidence i made the mistake but i had the ability that's when you know you're an nhl player when you have the ability not to dwell on your mistakes so i knew there was a turning point in my career i didn't dwell on that mistake uh, that I made that pass, even though I blame Bob. But I, I, because a lot of times you'd let the focus be on your mistake and you bring, and I brought negative attention by having the spaz, but I needed to have the spaz to get it out of my system. To get it out of your system, right. So then we play. So I end up being the leading goal scorer, uh, our point getter in Russia and Sweden. So I think they were only given one assist in Russia, but I end up having the most points of all the guys. But not one fight, because you're not fighting and things over there, but I was running the shit out of guys. And then we got back to uh, D.C. And so we get back on like a Saturday morning. We have a little breakfast party at Rod Langway's old bar. We have, because uh, we've been dying to eat real food again. We wanted I bacon, bet. I mean, you eggs. guys like brought like bags of milk or something. I, I don't know. Like... I don't, I've never drank milk in my life. So the, uh, but we had water. We had a lot of water. It was before people carried bottled water. So every guy had, every time you walked out of your room, you had two liters of water. You had a liter in each hand. Every time you left the dressing room, we had more water. Uh, so we get through the games in Riga, we get through uh, Leningrad, St. Petersburg, whatever it is, and we fly back t on this uh, flight from hell back to, uh, to D.C. Mm -hmm. And it was like one of those, they allowed us to drink, you never used to drink beer. We drank beer as a sleeping aid on that plane. Just because it was such a long flight and so rocky. And, and we, had, we had some delays getting out of uh, Russia. And so anyways, we get back, 
And the first night we practice at the Capitol Center, we get at like 6 p.m. on a Sunday night, and these two reporters come up to me, Bob Fasche, Dave Fayette and Bob Fasche, these two old-timers, Washington Post and Washington Times, and uh, really good dudes. And they talk to me every day that we're in Sweden, Russia, and they loved all my stories, like all the, you know, from playing in the coast, and, you know, they'd never met anybody like I was an alien. And uh, they go, hey, we uh, talked to the coach, and... He said he didn't bring you here to dance. I said, don't worry about me. He goes, what are you going to do about it? I said, I know what my job is. I said, I have 1,200 penalty minutes in the last three seasons. I know why I'm here, and I know why I'm going to be on this team. A pretty bold statement. I go, yeah, it is. I said, but don't worry in Philly. It's three and out. What do you mean three and out? I said, well, come, to, come and see me after the first period. So the very first period in Philadelphia, my very first game as a capital, so my other favorite, my very first favorite hockey team in the NHL ever was the Philadelphia Flyers. Because of the 70s. My, and and I, my dad was a Bob Yore guy. He's a Boston Bruins guy. Edmonton was in a different league. Uh, and they weren't even in the league yet. They started, that league started a little while after. But anyways, the, uh, Bobby Clark's my favorite player. Actually, every player in the Flyers is my favorite player. That's how much I love them. Uh, but Bobby Clark's my guy. So much so that I wanted to be a redheaded diabetic with no front teeth growing up. So, <laughs> and uh, so, only person said ever on this podcast. Yeah. But all right, thank you, Alan. And I actually got belted by my mom consecutive mornings for going to the bathroom and looking in the mirror, and after saying prayers all night that <laughs> I would be a redheaded diabetic with no front teeth. So, anyways, uh, I fought a six-six, a six-five, and a six-four guy. And wow. Jay Wells, Jeff Chicker, and Terry Carpenter win decisively in every fight. And I'm out. I played maybe 10 to 20 seconds of real hockey. But I just was not. I went out there first shift, nail Chikrin, fight him. Toe-to-toe, boom, 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 boom. Uh, get out of the penalty box, go to the box, get first shift out, go after Jay Wells in the corner with a huge hit. Drop the gloves, fight him lefty. Then I fight Terry Karkner, who, who was probably the toughest of the three in my opinion. And uh, so I'm in the dressing room. And I'm sitting there, and the two reporters walk down from the press box. Three and out. I love that. What are you going to do for an encore tomorrow? I go, tomorrow, when we play the Flyers in Baltimore, I am the invisible man. What does that mean? I said, not one guy will look at me because they're going to be on the road, and I did this in the spectrum. And so the next night we played there, I ran around, did everything I wanted. No one confronted me at all. And uh, so anyways, we play one more game against the Boston Bruins, who I love, Ray Bork but I nailed him with an open ice hit and then fought one of my old teammates. And that solidified the case that I was going to play a opening night for the cap. So you asked me a question, I gave you a half hour answer. No, and we'll take it. <laughs> we'll take it. And, and you know, you were pretty much slated to play in Baltimore. So, but it doesn't sound like you were surprised. You knew that you could I, make it. I actually signed a, like a hefty contract for the American league, mm -hmm. but I had no intention of playing there. And I was going to be the captain of the, uh, of the skipjacks. Uh, and they were thinking they were going to use me as a tweener, but they never told me that. But I never had, and it was weird in training camp when I saw Terry Murray when we finally got back from Russia. Uh, he wouldn't speak to me because half the team stayed here, like like yeah, the Baltimore yeah. guys. Yeah. They practiced in Columbia, yeah. and I wasn't going to sign with the Caps. I wasn't going to sign. A, I said I'll go back to the coast. I had a huge offer to play in the lower league, and and even sign an American League contract. And I was going to sign with the Maine Mariners again and get an NHL salary. And so I said, if I don't go to Russia, I'm not signing with you guys. If I don't go to Sweden and Russia, I'm not signing with you guys. Because there were people in the media that were surprised that you actually took that trip to Russia. It's, it's kind of interesting. In the research I did in the old Washington yeah. Post articles, that was kind of surprising. And, and you described it really well. It was this incredible run that you went yeah. on. 
And it sounds like really all in all, you knew, okay, this is my break. I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to make it happen. Yeah. I'm going to well, make it you happen. Ha- yeah. You, ha- you don't become an NHL player until you honestly believe that you are. And I had three years in the minor leagues. I had a couple cups of coffee, what we used to call getting called up. Uh, wasn't quite ready, uh, probably mentally more than anything. When I got to the Oilers, I wasn't quite right mentally uh, because I, I was so in awe of the guys I played with. And I kind of dwelled on one penalty that I got when I was with the Oilers. So I knew I had to toughen up. I had to get my act together. But as I went through the run in the playoffs, I go, I can do anything I want. Like I can, yeah, that's the way how, how, how you have to look at it. So I looked at it as though, you know what? I'm an NHL player now. I'm, I'm there. I got, nothing's going to knock me down. You beat me up in a fight. I'm getting right back up. I'm going to kick your ass. Uh, if you do something to one of my teammates, I'm going to run you through the wall. I'm going to score a goal. I'm going to do whatever I'm gonna do I have whatever to. whatever it takes to stay yeah, on this and, roster. But you don't, and it goes back to anything in life. You just, I, I expected only positive results. I wasn't looking for what if, what if, what if. That, I was too naive, maybe too dumb to understand that. But I also believe that you got to have a goal and nothing gets in your way. A to B, no detours. So opening night's coming up, and you guys are going to play the Philadelphia Flyers in the first game. But before we get there, the Caps kind of were going through a weird transition. The prior year, Pete Peters and Clint Malarchuk had been in net, and those guys were gone. So there's this kind of this looming question mark in who's going to play in goal. You had Don Beaupre. You had this young guy named Olaf Kolzik who is out of the Western League no one was familiar with. What did everybody kind of think of the goaltending situation at the time? Well, I've always been a Don Beaupre fan, and I was in awe of the guy. I thought he was awesome. I have always thought. He was NHL Rookie of the Year. I followed his career. I couldn't believe I played against him in the American Hockey League the year before a little bit. And he was, he, I think, I'm trying to think. Now, maybe it was the next year he was a holdout. But he was good. And we had Bob Mason was here. Uh, Bob, I didn't look at him as the same way I looked at, uh, at those guys. And then Ole, I, was, I thought, this guy's unbelievable. And we were actually roommates in that first Russia trip. Oh, wow. Uh, Sweden and Russia. And got to know each other quite well. But I don't think Ole was ready yet. Like, mentally, he was still, you know, a lot had come and, you know, come his way. Uh, and he just wasn't – you just didn't feel that I, – I could see that he was an NHL goaltender. And I don't know if he – and I might be speaking out of turn, but he may have wanted to go back to junior mm-hmm. for one more year. And that may have cost him six or seven years. But uh, – and I know that the, we, we played a hockey night in Canada game, and he, he, got, he got riddled the one night. We played really bad, lots of bad penalties. Uh, didn't seem like we ever played good in Toronto. Our, all of our Ontario guys were – I don't know what was going on with them, but they were never at where they needed to be at the time. And uh, but anyways, I look at Don Beaupre and he, he was the guy to me. And I thought, well, these Colzig and Defoe kids are awesome and they're good dudes. I love them. They were great kids. And uh, and but I just felt like Donnie was the guy. So Donnie was the guy for you. And so opening night takes place. And on October 6th, you guys pick up a win at the Cap Center, five to three win with goalie Don Beaupre getting some, you know, amazing goaltending uh, or, or getting some amazing credit for his goaltending. And just a few days later, Chicago comes to town and is able to sneak by the Caps, but you pick up your first regular season fight against a legend in Dirk Graham. Yeah, and I just recently watched that game. I told you, you'd actually sent me the game and I watched it. I watch it on my phone, and I, and I get that new screen capture thing that I can video whatever's on my phone. And I sent it to my son. I sent the, the fight, all the penalties I should have had, all the everything I did, the assist I got in the power play, the penalties that I was killing. The coach got himself fired when he quit playing me on the power play and the penalty kill. But anyways, uh, I pl- even played a couple games of defense that season. But uh, the, the, the Dirk Graham thing, I knew that one season he had like five or 600 penalty minutes in the Central Hockey League back uh, when it was a rival league to the American League or just another place to park guys. 
And so I looked at him as a tough guy. So I kind of took a, a shot at him when he skated by me, like a high shot that to, to provoke a fight. It was my way of always getting under someone's skin. And then we had a fight, and I, was, I remember I was throwing rights and lefts, and I was aware of how tough he was. So it was just good to get that one under. I wanted to get my regular season fights under the belt. And, you know, people go, oh, you thought about, well, I knew my role, and I knew that I would antagonize people. I had a big mouth. I, I talked the entire game. I was highly motivated to play in the NHL and be on the board every night. And uh, he, was, he was the first guy. And it just kind of steamrolled. I think the guys didn't know what they were getting to me. Because, like I said, the guys didn't know, unless they were in the American Hockey League, they didn't know who I was. But all of a sudden, they're going, man, you're crazy. You're not scared of anything out there. Well, you, you have apprehensions, but you don't let yourself. You don't, you don't, don't let people ask, see nah. And I never resorted to booze or, or drugs or anything to make me brave. I just was brought up to be five foot two. Well, you, you keep fighting again uh, on October 20th. The Islanders come to town, and Mick Fakoda had a huge game scoring a hat trick during the first period. And you, he had to answer to you during the second period, and he's not a guy I really hear much about. What do you remember about playing against you know, the Islanders and Mick Fakoda well, at that era? I knew Mick from the summers. He used to skate. We, he'd come and skate in Edmonton at the university with our skating coach. And uh, you know, he, was a mo he was huge, but I, he didn't throw a whole lot of punches in his fights. What he used to do, what you used to have to worry about with him, is he'd pick you up by the pants and body slam me and try to do this. Because he was so strong. Yeah, and he did that in that fight with me. Like, I'm trying to throw punches. He puts his head down. He's about four inches bigger than me, grabs my pants, and the next thing you know, you're going in the air, and he pile drives you kind of. <laughs> and I don't know if it was a clavicle or I felt something in there, but I didn't feel good for a few weeks. Like, my body was kind of a little bit out of whack from that one. But the face was fine. The teeth were fine. The, getting the body slam part. So the only thing I was ever worried about if I had to fight a Mick Fakota was about getting body slammed. So that was the one thing you looked out for. But, you, you know, you, you talked about hurting your shoulder. But I'm assuming this was not something like that was worth taking time out. No, you, you know what? If you could lift your arm, it, it's a lot different sport than you. I always looked at injuries or opportunity. So if someone got hurt, that's an opportunity for me. So there's no different. If I'm out, someone gets a chance to sit in my spot. And... I never trusted coaches to be loyal to you. Uh, I think it's a lot different in today's league, uh, especially with limited roster spots and limited contracts, but I never trusted a coach in my life. So we talked about Olaf Kolzik a second ago. He gets sent back to junior, and they end up doing a trade for Bob Mason. And I wanted to kind of just ask you, how do you feel about younger goaltenders in the NHL? Because in the past, it hasn't always worked, but sometimes it does. From your experience, what do you think about that? Well, I don't think you can give them too much too soon. You've got to be mentally ready. And I kind of equate them to tough guys in the old days. Uh, you can't bring up a 20, 21-year-old guy and expect him to battle these guys who are 25, 26, 27, 28, who are you know, three, four, 500, 600 pro games under the They're belt. They're men. And, yeah, because you're still so naive and innocent when you get into the league and and you're not fully confident in all those things. So I had three years to build it up. I look at goaltenders, and that's probably why Ole lasted so long is because he came in as an older goaltender. He didn't really become a starter until he was 27 or 28, if, if memory serves me right. And, but he had learned how to win in the American Hockey League, highly competitive. He did the shuttle with Defoe between uh, the Hampton Roads Admirals and the ECHL, the East Coast Hockey League back then before it was just the ECHL. Uh, and whether they were in Baltimore or Portland, they were going back and forth. And, but I just think that with young goaltenders, you can't give them the reins. You can't give them the, you can't give them the keys to the car and expect them to be able to drive it all the way. And it just, there's too much because they have to go through, uh, trials and tribulations of, of losing streaks, bad goals, 
not not feeling great, uh, you know, things going on in your personal life. It, it just so I think it it helps to nurture these guys rather than just give them the keys of the car right away. Because I've seen too many times. I think more often than not, you give the young goaltender uh, the reins. And it fails, it just and never because turns they, out be, well. yeah, we, we've seen goaltenders who how they were so great, and then they never got it back. Uh, you look at Bennington in in St. Louis; he's not a young guy. Like as far as you know, get in the net, he had to go through a lot. He had a lot of ups and downs, and had to build himself up, had to build his mind up. So I'm a big believer in paying your dues. The Capitals round out October with a record of three seven and three. The team snapped the losing streak and would go on to win three in a row with the wins over the Leafs, the Nordiques, and the New York Islanders. The team struggles a bit through November, and on November seventeenth, the Capitals head into Los Angeles to play against your former team, the LA Kings. The Kings were stacked: Marty McSorley, Wayne Gretzky, Bernie Nichols, Luke Robitaille. I consider this kind of the heyday for the LA Kings, and really like the the team of the eighties. What do you remember about going to LA and, and playing against the Kings? It seemed like teams always looked forward to that, to that road trip. Well, it used to be a lot different. There were 21 teams at the time. So when you went on the LA road trip, uh, you'd stay there for about a week at a time. So okay. you'd have days where you didn't practice. And I think on that trip, I'm not sure if that's the one. Yeah, it was the one. We went to uh, Scottsdale, Arizona for four days. That came later in the season. That was actually that later, that in, the later in the season. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So when it was the first road trip, I actually got hurt skating at the Naval Academy. My skate went through the ice, and it was a slushy ice. So I ripped, I tore something like a groin or I had a strain, and I couldn't skate. And so I missed a game in Vancouver, and then they played well. They had a tie or something like that, and I was told I was playing in L.A., and then the day of the game, I had my first argument with the coach, my first FU fight with my coach. And because I was preparing for the game, and then all of a sudden I go to leave the ice after the morning skate, and the assistant coach comes up and he goes, hey, what are you doing? You're skating. I said, no, I'm playing tonight. He goes, no, you're not. We, we played good, so he's not playing you now. I said, but he told me I was playing. He goes, well, you're not playing now. And I just said, well, I'm not skating. Well, he, goes, he goes, what? I said, I'm not skating. I said, if you're going to lie to me, it's not going to be a good relationship. And... Uh, I just went in the dressing room, took my gear off. I was pissed. And that was it. We played that night. We played the Kings, and it was amazing. I actually sat in the stands. Uh, Nick Kiprios was a healthy scratch. I sat in the stands, and they, uh, I sat with Mary Hart, who used to be. Uh, from what's it? From the TV show. Entertainment Tonight. Yeah. I sat with her, and there was a movie called, well, I don't know, Eddie and the Cruisers. And I sat with. Uh, the main character from the movie, the other guy, I can't remember his name right now, but it was it was bizarre what was going on in the stands. Like the people that were at the stands, there was a bar inside the arena called the Forum. The Forum Club, Club. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. It was biz- who was in there? There were so many actors and models, and everywhere you looked in the stands, you saw people that you recognized. I think Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn I saw there for the first time. Sylvester Stallone was at the game, I believe. It was bizarre, and the Kings were they were fast. They were. You know, Gretzky confidence, the uniforms were amazing. They were so far ahead of – they were the first team that went black the way they did. They changed from the purple and gold to the, to the black, black and silver. silver. Yeah. And it was it was kind of awesome watching it. And then I, But they bullied us that night. And secretly, you know, I'm a team guy, but I was so mad at the coach that – that I was happy that we got bullied and, and pummeled. I think it was six. To, was that score six to two? It was five to three. Five but, to three. But it's funny you mentioned that. You must have pissed Brian Murray off because he ended up getting into it with Tom Webster during that yeah. game. Well, they're two old cranky guys. And they're I wanted to ask competitive you, guys. You've played in the minors, and this really applies, I guess, to your whole career. Have you ever seen two coaches? Like, what was the worst thing you ever saw with like two coaches getting into it? Oh, I, 
I've seen coaches go out and try to rip each other around the glass when the benches were all side by side, uh, yelling at each other in the hallway. You know, so a lot of guys just acted like they were like they were that way. Other guys, I've actually beat up a coach as a player, jumped on a bench and fought a coach. <laughs> uh, what city was that in? Uh, Atlantic Coast Hockey League. I was on the Carolina Thunderbirds, and we were playing the Virginia Lancers. In, in Roanoke, Roanoke, Virginia? Or? Vinton, Vinton, technically at the oh, time, in the old me. arena. In yep, the old yep. arena. And this little guy, he, had a, he used to dress like Robbie Fatorik, had a V-neck sweater on. He had Jerry Curl, big mullet, big nose. It was John Tortorella. And, uh, <laughs> and two years later, he was my coach. But he was multi- we had a bench-clearing brawl back when everyone used to leave the bench and fight. And I was in my element, and I was, you know, it was fun. And anyways, he was yelling at me on the bench, so I just jumped on the bench and just started nailing him. And he's not a big guy. He's a little guy. He's full of fire. Uh, and just a, he's a, just a badass dude. I love him. And how, how can you not love him? I, I, lo- I, well, just and, love and I got to play for him two years later. And he used to, the coach that I had at the time, Rick Dudley, used to piss me off on purpose. And John was the buffer because I would throw things at Rick on the bench. But Rick loved it. He's a, he's bizarre. He, he's so weird. It was unbelievable. It was so on game day, I would try to kill him. Uh, and then on practice days, he'd go, Hey, you want to work out today, buddy? <laughs> and then, and they, hey, let's go for a bowl of soup and a sandwich. It's a bipolar. It, it's just but, like... it, but then he'd make me mad because he said, oh, and John would go, oh, he likes it when you play mad. I said, I don't need to be that mad. And, uh, but it was, but John was, I love the guy. And he's so misunderstood. His media persona is so different from who he really is. He's one of the greatest humans in the world. I absolutely love the guy. And uh, I owe a lot to him to play in the National Hockey League because he was on that New Haven team as one of my coaches when I made the run to the finals before I played in the NHL full-time. Oh, that's awesome, man. I, I, I personally am a huge fan of him because I love his passion. Yep. Like, that's one thing you can never accuse him of. His, his- uh, but everything is life. I'll tell you, if you went to his office and you were you were on the list and they, he was pissed off at you, you'd think he was pissed. You'd walk out of his office 10 feet tall and bulletproof, feel so good about yourself, and you'd go on a just an absolute run and a tear. He, he's just a – He's a really good man. He's a great human. He's a great father, husband. Everything about him is all world. We talked about him as a coach in the minors, but let's talk about your current coach at the time, Brian Murray. You know, what was your relationship like with him? What kind of coach was he? He was hardcore. I loved him. He was old school. He, he would uh, he'd get pissed off a lot. He'd snap, but he had a really wicked sense of humor. And in the team meetings, which, you know, most teams don't have a team meeting like the Caps used to have back then. There was a very structured, like, school. And Brian was a former school teacher. Never played pro hockey, but a student of the game, an incredible coach, a tactician. Uh, and liked, he liked, I guess there was, there was a process that he liked. He liked, you had to know everything. And he, he had so much structure, I guess is the word I'm looking for. But he'd snap. But what I liked about him is he kind of, it was like having my dad coach me. Because you know you get mad at your dad when he coaches you, but your dad doesn't hate you for getting mad. Like, right. he understands, and he'd come. So I remember uh, we had it out after the L.A. game, and when we got back, we took a red eye. We, we took went straight to practice, and he bag-skated us. Oh, so that was so old school. And they went around the room, and he was ripping every guy apart one by one, and he was saving the great one for me. And he called me a name, and I jumped up and tried to kick his ass. And uh, guys are in between us, and I'm just – I go off on a verbal tirade, and next thing you know, he's out of the room. And it was all – I guarantee it was staged because he knew 
what I was like. He loved my temper. Now, could coaches get away with that today? Neither could a player. No, but you know what? There's, it's a different world, and I don't, I don't fault anyone for the way they used to coach about the he never laid a hand on me. Mm-hmm. Uh, if he did, it was in the way a dad would put his hand on the back of your neck. Right. I remember after that, the next game we played the Islanders, I think I had the winning goal in that game in the third period. It was our next game. Is that correct? Somewhere that is correct. There? Yep. And he came up and put his arm on me. And I was still mad at him. And I go, get your, get your fucking hand off me. And he goes, calm down. And so we were going back and forth. But you had that relationship but he, with him. He, he loved, I probably went in his office more than anyone. He'd go, hey, I need to talk to you. And uh, I would go in there and he'd crack jokes. He'd make fun of me. He'd show me some stupid video of what me doing stud. something stupid. And, uh, but he was cool to me. And he, I, I love the honesty, the passion, and the fire of the dude. And I wish we could have won with him. Uh, cause he's a, he was a great guy. He was a great man. And then you hear all the stuff he did for all of his coaches and the trainers, the amount of respect he treated them. And then, you know, everywhere I saw him along the way, he was always, I wish I could have got to play for him again when I left here. I have some very, very good news for you. If you enjoyed this interview, Part two is going to drop next Monday where we get into a ton more stuff. We talk about the rest of the regular season. We talk about Terry Murray. We talk about the playoffs. I don't want to spoil it, so I won't go into it, but uh, an awesome interview. And uh, like I said, I hope you guys enjoyed this. This was one of the funnest interviews I've got to do. And I was really impressed also with Alan's memory and his historical hockey knowledge. We, you know, he referred to events in this, in this episode that kind of like he remembered specifically after the LA trip going to play against the Islanders or going against the, you know, different teams. And, and he does that even more in the second part of the interview, which like I said, will air next Monday. So in the meantime, have a great week. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, not much to report new. Hopefully I have a couple of interviews lined up and uh, we will talk soon. See you on Monday for part two of our interview with Alan may have a good one.